You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word and for the way you bring us life through your word. And so we ask now that you would take my words and allow them to shed light on your word, your holy scriptures, uh, that they might, uh, through them, you might humble us and heal us and free us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to take a moment and actually take off my very distracting hat so that you can hear what I'm going to say. Now, one of the best parts about preaching our way through the books of the Bible and through a book like this, when we preach all the way through, we cover, we end up having to cover passages like the passage for tonight from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here, um, Paul is reflecting on an issue that the Corinthians had likely mentioned in their letter to him. He moves from the topic discussed in chapters 8 through 10 of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And he moves on then in chapters 11 through 14 to discuss issues having to do with what happens when we gather weekly uh, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, so he'll go on and address those other things throughout chapters 11 and 14. But the issue here, the issue tonight, surrounds what should women who are in leadership wear when they come to church. Um, And so we're going to look at that. Um, And we're going to look, and what we're going to see is that Paul takes the same principle that he's been arguing for for the last three chapters, chapters 8 through 10. He's going to take that same principle surrounding food, and he's going to imply it and carry it further into this issue right here, this issue of um, head coverings for women. And he's even going to extend it um, throughout these next chapters when he looks at the Lord's Supper and the rest of chapter 11, and then also with spiritual gifts in chapters 12, 13, and 14. So you might say, well, great, Deborah, if this is about what you should wear to church or about what Abby, who read our lessons, should wear to church, um, then why don't you learn that on your own time and, and we'll just go home. You could just say amen right now and we'll be done with it. But I, I'm going to say that this passage, I want you to trust me that the interpretation and application of this passage will affect all of the women and all of the men in this room. So let's start out, because a few data points will help us understand what Paul is saying and who it is that he's speaking to. First of all, we know that Jewish women women in the first century always wore a veil over their heads when they were in public. And this was not a burqa. This was like a veil over their hair. You could still see their faces, but their hair was covered. Kenneth Bailey, is a, uh, he was a New Testament scholar who lived for 40 years in the Middle East, pastoring different churches there. And he got to know Middle Eastern culture so well that when he looks at the Bible, when he, he passed away recently, when he looked at the Bible, he would be able to understand some of the cultural uh, mindsets that we Westerners, uh, the rest of us Westerners, don't always see. Uh, Bailey looks at several rabbinic texts. And he shows that a woman's uncovered head in public was understood culturally to be an act of provocation, a flaunting of her sensual beauty to attract the men in that culture. 
And an example of this is found in one, one rabbi shows that a Jewish husband could legally divorce his wife without providing a financial settlement for her if she even went out of their house without her head covering on or with, it, with her hair down long. It was seen as being, uh, sending a signal. And it was true for Greek and Roman women as well. There's little variation, but we know that married Roman women of a certain class and respectability always covered their hair outside the home. Um, and we see this, we hear from one Roman historian who points out that appropriate head coverings for respectable Roman women served as a protection of their dignity and status as women not to be propositioned. Any man who dared approach a woman in public with a veil on would face penalties. But if she wasn't wearing her veil, then that man was off the hook. So veils communicated relationship status to men in public, saying, I'm taken or I'm available. So now that we know this, we might be in danger of thinking that these Corinthian women were vagrantly uh, flagrantly flaunting their sexuality. But I prefer to think otherwise. I, I want to think the best of them. Uh, and I do this today as well. When I see, usually it's teenage girls wearing the shortest skirts possible to church, or when I see um, well-grown uh, women, full-grown women, older women who should know better, coming to the communion rail with very low-cut shirts, um, it looks like they're trying to catch a man, but I know better. And, and I know if they're trying to catch a man, it's poor aim. They're aiming in the wrong place. <laughs> but I prefer to think that those young girls and those um, women with poor judgment are actually just naive. They're naive about the way some men's eyes and libidos work. Perhaps these women in Corinth were like that. Um, perhaps they felt as though they were actually not even in public because they were worshiping in a private home with men and women that they called their brothers and sisters in Christ. They were a part of a newfound family of God. And so just like their family at home, it was okay to show their hair, right? That was not a big deal. But maybe they underestimated, again, how much the new age had actually entered into the reality of the church at that point. I believe, too, that these women in Corinth must have felt especially freed by the gospel. Sociologist and historian Rodney Stark points out that most classical writers recognize that Christianity provided a, a far higher status for women than did the rest of the Greco-Roman world at large. And we know some of the numbers surrounding uh, what the ratio between men and women were, both outside the church and within the church. So for the first few centuries of the church, women significantly outnumbered the men. Way more women than men, not just like 51 and 49, but way more than that. And, and then in the pagan world, the reverse was true. There were at best 130 men for every 100 women. Something was drawing women to convert to Christianity. And it, 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 it's, yes, the truth of the gospel. And yet somehow the truth of the gospel was heard by these women because maybe it was manifested in ways uh, that changed their lives very tangibly. Stark cites these, uh, some evidence about what um, these benefits for Christian women included. Christian women were married later. Instead of at age 12, they could get married as late as 18 or 20. They were not victims of a double standard regarding chastity and fidelity. 
they were encouraged to stay, stay single even once they were widowed, um, whereas the Roman, one Roman emperor, emperor uh, fined widows if they stayed unmarried for more than two years following the death of their husband. So unlike their status in Greco-Roman or even Jewish cultures, Christian women were viewed by the church as full persons, ones, precious ones, for whom Christ died. So I would say, too, that Paul's commands to women throughout his letters don't make sense without the freeing power of the gospel. Women would not have dared to flout convention in the ways that they seem to have been flouting convention in the churches had they not already experienced some kind of freedom from the constraints, the extremely constrained culture around them. Paul encourages freed women who, like men, are made in the image of God to voluntarily curb their freedom for the sake of the gospel. Well, in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, we find Paul argues his case by returning to the creation of the first man and the first woman in Genesis 1 and 2. And we find, if you're there with me, you'll see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 27, we hear that God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. And he gave them dominion over all the earth. He blessed them and told them, be fruitful and multiply. And then Genesis tells us there is evening and morning, the end of the sixth day. So after telling out about God's rest on the seventh day, the, the, um, the model for the Sabbath, Genesis then goes back in chapter 2 to hear more detail about just how God created them, male and female, on the sixth day. So Genesis 2 tells us specifics. God forms the man out of dust and breathes life into him. He set him in the garden to work and keep it. And then here comes the first not good and the whole sequence of creation. God had called everything so far that he had made good. But now he says in Genesis 2.18 that there is one thing that is not good. The man is alone. God parades every existing animal before the man to show him that loneliness, to show him that there is no equal to him found within the entire animal kingdom. Then God puts him to sleep and takes out one of his ribs, and from that, ribs, from that rib he fashions the first woman, Eve. So when Paul identifies in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, the head of Christ is God, he is running chronologically through the origins of each. His brain is fixed on Genesis 1 and 2 throughout this whole argument. Um, Adam's origin came through the creative word of God, the second person of the Trinity. And then um, Eve's source was from Adam's rib, rib. And then finally, third, Jesus, much later in his incarnation, originated from God the Father. And this brings up that question about the word used throughout our passage for tonight, that word head. Um, we often in the West, we hear that word, and certainly the last several centuries of Germanic languages have conditioned us to hear that word and to think automatically of a head of state or um, the head steward or the headmaster, someone who has almost extreme authority over a given situation, perhaps the CEO, uh, in this case, of the family. Um, and yet that kind of 
um, unquestioned authority is not necessarily behind this image. There are nuances to the way the ancients understood the word for head. Obviously, literally, they meant head. But then figuratively, there are three main definitions that are used throughout the ancient world that could point to what Paul is getting at. So, um, first of all, uh, when, the, when ancients used the Greek word for head metaphorically, they often intended to signify the origin or the source of something. We say this when we talk about the headwaters of a river, um, the spring of the river. Or when um, talking about parenthood, where did we come from? Well, I came from Janet and Christopher Layton, you know, the parents who generated particular offspring. And again, this, this might seem strange to us because we automatically think of heads of state and that kind of um, dominion associated with it. But actually, if you think about the central nervous system, the ancients, for the, there's some variation, but mostly they did not understand the way the central nervous system works. They didn't know that the brain sends commands to different parts of the body, which the body then obeys. They didn't know that thought and decision-making come from our, our, our heads. Um, they actually thought it came from your midriff for some reason. But um, so again, they didn't know about the central nervous system. So that's one of the first nuances is that sense of, of source. And again, these varied definitions are related to one another, as you'll see. Another nuanced meaning of this word is preeminent or foremost or representative, uh, deriving from the literal prominence of the head on the body. When we think of someone, we think of their face. That's how we identify them. That encompasses, for us, all of who they are. Um, we see them, and that's immediately that thought of, well, that's so-and-so, and it's at the very top. Um, we hear this in, first, in Colossians 1, when Paul describes Jesus Christ, the head of the body, the first, uh, firstborn from the dead, uh, the firstborn even before that of all creation. He's looking at not only source and also this preeminence, this firstness. And then that third meaning, uh, that third metaphorical meaning is leader and does identify some sense of leadership or primacy with this word head, um, like chief or leader. But one thing that's really important to recognize about this, often when you'll hear people talking about this word head and they'll say headship, a lot of times what they end up actually advocating for is the subjugation um, of, of women to men, of wives to husbands. But in fact, that is not likely Paul's intention here. And we hear this, St. Christostom points out, first of all, that um, he couldn't have meant rule and subjection here because if he had meant this, um, then he would have brought forward the instance not of a woman and a man or a wife and a husband, but rather of a slave and a master. Christostom goes on to say, um, a wife or a woman is free, equal in honor, and the son also. Thought, uh, the son also, though he did become obedient to the father, he did so as the son of God, um, fully God's own son, of the same substance, of equal substance. So there is a sense of equality here, even while there is a sense of leadership, origin, preeminence. So head refers not necessarily to hierarchical concerns, how are we going to decide what to do, but rather to relational concerns, how are we going to live and there is disagreement about this. And so what I would say is for those who would disagree, um, there can be amicable and even Christian-loving disagreement about interpretation of Scripture, especially among those who all agree about the authority of Scripture. 
One final quote about head uh, regarding men and women, husbands and wives, comes from uh, Charles Spurgeon, who references Solomon's wisdom from Proverbs. Spurgeon says, Some men like to quote the scripture that says, The husband is the head of the wife. But the wisest man who ever lived said, A good wife is a crown to her husband. And everybody knows that you always wear a crown on the top of your head. Paul goes on in his passage to reference continually Genesis 2, especially in verse 8 and verse 9. Woman there is created from man, and woman was created for man. Man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. The emphasis here is not on the image part, but on the glory part. Because when God presents Eve to Adam, like the first bride to the first groom, Adam exclaims, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Adam glories in Eve by bursting into poetic song. What is this glory that we have as women? Well, this glory involves beauty and it involves honor being given and conferred through proximity of relationship. The existence of one brings honor and praise to the other. I just imagine eating a meal cooked by an incredibly gifted hostess, and we don't all have these gifts. I, I wish I had more of this gift, but I've been privy, especially in the South, to wonderful meals cooked by wonderful cooks. Um, and at the end of the meal, I can't help but turn to the husband and say, you are a very lucky man, <laughs> and wish my own husband was as fortunate in that area. So the glory of a woman, our glory, whether it's our culinary prowess or beauty or kindness, um, whether it's our achievements, whether it's our children, or even our annual income, or maybe, like in this passage, our hair. All that we have is the glory also of our husbands. Paul mentions, going on in verse 15, specifically that a woman's hair is her glory. Hair was a part of a woman's beauty there in the first century. And so again, unveiling that literal head of beautiful hair in public would dishonor her figurative head, her husband, because it would suggest that he didn't exist. Paul tells them, cover your heads and honor your heads. Cover your literal head and honor your figurative head. And the bottom line of all of this in worship is that God alone must be glorified. Let's not distract from the word of God. Let's not get in the way of the word of God doing its work in our hearts. And that's why I took off my hat. It's a really good hat. And I knew that you would see it and think about how good a hat it was. The whole time I was talking, I wore it because it is a way of appearing to obey the letter of the law here, right? This is the passage that has generated um, the communities around the world of Christians that will encourage and force women to cover their heads and wear a hat. So it's obeying the letter of the law, but it's incredibly distracting. It's really cool. It's incredibly distracting. So I was disobeying the spirit of the law in order to illustrate so again, for ladies, for us today, is Paul telling us to wear a hat in church? No, and definitely not a distracting hat. Um, but we also shouldn't come to church in a bathing suit or in the latest sexy fashion. Um, that would be totally distracting. We dress when we come to church with a sense of purpose. Is our purpose to catch a man? No. Our purpose is to glorify God 
even if that means somehow veiling for a time the fullness of our own feminine glory. And so now for the rest of us, for the fuller body of Christ, male and female, what does Paul say for all of us? I would say that this passage challenges our very notions about religion itself. Is Christianity primarily a set of doctrines to be believed or a set of rules to be obeyed? As women, we could say, well, I've checked the box. I wore my hat today. I've, I'm, I'm a good little girl. I've done everything I need to do, and I've done it apart from God, so I don't ultimately need God. That is not how we believe and operate. Christianity is instead an unshakable, objective truth that transforms our basic assumptions, transforms our entire lives as individuals, while also providing a web of life-giving relationships, starting first and foremost with a friendship with the living God. So the law that we hear in this passage spoken to women is actually, in any of the laws, all, all of the laws that we hear in the Word are actually predicated on love. Just like with those eating meat sacrificed to idols in the previous chapters, Paul here is asking these women to deny their freedom for the sake of the ones they love by pointing specifically to Eve's origin from Adam. Again, in verses 11 through 12, Paul is underscoring man and woman's interdependence. Neither of us is independent of the other. By creating woman from Adam's rib and then causing every man after Adam to be born from a woman, God shows us to be mutually dependent upon each other. We derive our existence from one another. We need one another. One is not the moon to the other's sun or the earth to the other's, or the moon to the other's earth or the earth to the other's sun. Instead, we are like equal bodies in space, each orbiting around the true center of the universe the Son himself, uh, God himself. One is not the CEO and the other the administrative assistant. No, instead we are called uh, to be like a pair of oxen yoked together as a team to labor side by side for the kingdom of God. So Paul here appeals to interdependence among husbands and wives and even among women and men in the church. Paul also appeals to love. In Romans 13, Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments are summed up in this word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In just a few chapters in 1 Corinthians, we'll hear Paul's great ode to love in chapter 13, surrounding the discussion about spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. But he begins today's passage by referencing love when he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He refers to his own example in chapter 9, where he voluntarily gives up his rights as an apostle so that more might hear and receive the good news. Paul points out that his example is mod modeled after Jesus Christ, the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells, who had all of the rights and privileges of heaven and yet gave it all up, humbling himself for our sake so that we who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. 
This true love, this sacrificial love is not something we can drum up within ourselves. Horizontal love is predicated on God's one-way vertical love for us in Jesus Christ. We cannot give what we haven't received. It's a property, God's love, is a property that exists outside of us. We receive it, and then we give it back out, extend it to those around us. Loving others sacrificially means merely passing on the gift that God has given us in Christ Jesus. Truly loving our brothers or our sisters, our husbands or our wives, our neighbors, our friends, and even our enemies, that is impossible. It's impossible for us to do. But God is faithful, and he will do it. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.